Welcome to TWTFM, a podcast from The World Transformed, an annual festival and year-round political education project committed to delivering political education across the UK in order to build a movement capable of radically transforming society. We'll be releasing weekly podcasts across September to coincide with this year's festival, looking at the big topics with a wide-angle lens you'd expect from TWT. You can now register for a festival pass and view the full September programme at theworldtransformed.org. But for now, turn up your headphones, sit back and listen up. This is The World Transformed. In this, our pilot episode, we wanted to look at the theme of unemployment. As a result of COVID-19 and its attendant economic downturn, thousands have either lost their jobs or are worried that they will soon. And with the government's furlough scheme winding down, we could be looking at level of unemployment not seen for decades. To start with, we spoke to Kia Milburn, author of Generation Left and co-host of ACFM podcast, and Will Strong, director of Autonomy, a think tank all about the future of work, to ask what is unemployment? Here's Kia. We're just about to enter a real uh, expansion of unemployment. And the fears are that the economic crisis, which is related to the pandemic, although not synonymous with it, I think, is going to cause the contraction of the economy. It's going to cause quite a lot of small, medium-sized enterprises to close and therefore they lay off their workers. And at the moment, the effects of the of the crisis have been masked by government support through the furlough scheme. Both of those are getting lifted soon. And so the worry is that there's going to be a big spike in unemployment. Yeah, so I think ever since the 2008 financial crash, our economies have been limping on with very low growth, growing private debt. Um, The conditions are set for another crash coming down the line. Indeed, many economists were predicting the same thing. So the COVID pandemic is unique and unprecedented, sure. But Unemployment has, you know, was to some extent around the corner, whether it's this uh, kind of economic crisis or or the next. And I think that it's worth kind of unpacking what is unemployment, what function does it play in our economies and and more broadly capitalism. It's important to remember that unemployment really only exists within a capitalist system. Unemployment, as we know it, is is not something uh, that's that's natural or that's for all time. For capitalist economies, there would be a, a feudal system. People might be able to have live off a of commons, would have to engage in a wages system or they live off their lord's land. When, when people say what causes unemployment, that sort of sidesteps the question. I, unemployment plays a particular role for capitalism and it plays a, a different role for capitalism at different, different periods, different iterations of capitalism. And indeed, as a, the, the, the general level of unemployment has been, you know, quite low in the post-war period in countries such as the UK and Germany, the unemployment rate hovered around 1.5 to 2 percent. You know, in, in the sort of 80s, 90s, 2000s, it was much more. It was up to 5 percent was was seen as more the natural level of unemployment. And in fact, it was very hard to be sure about that because unemployment tends to be masked by things such as underemployment, people who have some work but need or want more work. Or in recent times, in particular, unemployment gets masked by by self-employment, by almost by bogus self-employment sometimes. Mm-hmm. One, one figure that stands out in particular, I think it was the Joseph Browntree Foundation, their study on poverty and unemployment showed that since 2006, there's been a 60% increase of people going in and out of work. So what they call a low pay, no pay cycle. So the experience of unemployment is, is much more familiar than we might think. And often these, these cycles of going in and out of work aren't captured by statistics either. It might be useful to think about some of the ways in which economists have thought about unemployment and the causes of unemployment. Before the 1930s, you know, the, the dominant view in economics was that um, unemployment was voluntary in some way, that in fact, all, all unemployment marked was the unwillingness of certain workers to work at the market level of wages. And like what gets betrayed in that is that if you just treat labour as a commodity, you miss the fact that labour is made up of people with their own needs for reproduction, etc. And of course, if the level of wages fall below the level of reproduction, whether you're unemployed or employed, that just means an inability for society to maintain itself. And that's exactly what happens in the 1930s during the Great Depression. That changes the way that people tend to see unemployment 
with the, the adoption of a more Keynesian framework for economics. The dominant model for thinking about economics in that time is the, is the Phillips curve, which basically just says that there's an inverse relation between inflation and unemployment. So rising prices should reduce unemployment because it stimulates demand, etc. Then you get to the 1970s and you see that that doesn't happen. Basically, inflation goes up and unemployment goes up. And in fact, what happens in the 1970s is that uh, the response to that neoliberalism, which is what I call the neoliberal counter-revolution even, is that inflation, really, really high inflation, is deliberately caused in order to provoke unemployment. In the US, they call it the Volcker shock, where interest rates are raised up to sort of double figures, up to like 20, 25% overnight in order to cause mass unemployment, to use unemployment to bring wages down. In the Marxist tradition, well, Marx tends to think about the unemployed as a reserve army of labour. So he he is concerned about this idea that the link is between uh, wages and unemployment. And in fact, you know, if wages get too high, and there's only two ways in which wages get high, is you get a lot shortage of labour or you get labour organised. If wages get too high, then the capitalists would employ less people, which would bring unemployment up and therefore wages down. But if you think about the 1970s, you see a sort of problem in that is that that only works if unemployment is a miserable experience. And in fact, if unemployment leads to, to destitution, basically. In the 1930s, a Polish economist called Michael Kalecki wrote a really interesting essay called The Political Aspects of Full Employment, in which he made really clear that the threat of destitution was the main form through which capitalist discipline was imposed. He said that one of the problems with trying to maintain very low levels of unemployment, such as in the Keynesian era, one of the problems with that would be that you would, you would get workers lose capitalist discipline and look for other ways in which to live their lives. That's one way of interpreting the 1970s. Yeah, I think I think there's something interesting about that, that that clicky paper of like reveals, yeah, exactly the disciplinary function that unemployment plays throughout the history of capitalism. This goes back a fairly long way. It's been there since the beginning. Whether you look at punishment for, for those who are idle, who are kind of roaming the countryside doing as what they will, right through to the workhouse in the 19th century after the poor laws, where the premise was basically life outside of work has to be made worse than the, even the lowest paid worker. Basically. Life, unemployed life has to be destitute, has to be physically demeaning uh, and demanding. And, and I think the same premise runs right through to the labour exchanges designed by Churchill and, and, and Beveridge in the, the early 1900s, and then even through to the job centre where it plays a certain disciplinary function where you know, if you're not willing to work, you could get sanctioned. If you miss an appointment, you can get sanctioned. Your benefits can be removed. So that disciplinary function runs right through capitalism. If you, if you take away that function, if you take away unemployed life altogether, either by giving by providing full employment or by making the life of the unemployed um, or the, the, the prospects, the opportunities much greater outside of work, then suddenly there's a political opening emerges. I think that Kalecki paper as well opens up this really interesting way of thinking about unemployment where you pair employment with freedom. And so that's partly what he's saying is that like if you if you remove the threat of destitution then that just increases the freedom of workers and they will start to look around about how would I really actually like to live my life. In fact in the 1970s you do see lots of you you see for one on the one hand the huge explosion of creativity in the arts and culture but you also see lots of people experimenting with different ways of living something like a million americans went to live on in communes in the 1970s you know uh, shared housing all of these different ideas about how you might actually live a life and what a life might 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 look like so one of the ways in which you might think about how how work has changed is that we tend to be trained to think about finding freedom not outside of work but through work we tend to ha- we tend to get trained to identify with our with the work we do so much depends what sector you're in right i don't think many call center workers really identify with their work but at the, but the sort of like career type work you're supposed to really identify with it so much that in fact perhaps work, perhaps being paid for your work it can sometimes be seem incidental and so we can understand the rise of unpaid internships etc and that that sort of that sort of manner which does have an impact on the way we might think about how the left might respond to a jump in unemployment if that is exactly in fact what happens over the next few months and perhaps the next year or so 
Yeah, I think it's. I think you're absolutely right that basically being unemployed is a lot of work these days. A lot, perhaps a lot more work than it used to be, precisely because the Job Centre Plus and the, the DWP system effectively tries to recreate work or the the experience of work in the job application process, even if there's not enough jobs on the market or, or you had an economic crash. You basically have to spend time looking for for jobs you almost certainly won't necessarily want, but to show that you've been doing that. That's part of the system it's almost not even uh, profitable to do that it's just like a ritual to some extent um, yeah i think it's a disciplinary thing but it's also um it's most pernicious you see things that such as work programs where but which basically employ they sort of weaponize some sort of mystical form of positive thinking where you're you're encouraged to think the reason you're unemployed is because of, of some cause within yourself that you lack you lack ambition etc etc in a time such as uh, such as perhaps we're going to see in a couple of weeks where that where the causes of unemployment the rise in unemployment is basically certainly not to do with some sort of eruption of laziness amongst people of the uk it'll be of external economic causes um, that's hard to sustain in any form which may produce interesting uh, opportunities for the left to try and change the narrative about work and unemployment history of the job centre. The year is 1910 and the first labour exchanges open in Britain. The idea of these centres was the state intervention into the laws of supply and demand within the labour market, the matching of the unemployed with employers needing workers. This may sound like a simple solution, but was a much deeper manifestation of a liberal capitalist reluctance in state intervention in the job market. Due to an initial reluctance to make job centres permanent in bricks and mortar, the first exchanges opened up inside factories, offices, shops and chapels, with children as young as 11 found waiting in long winding queues around street corners. They were painted dark green and inside separate rooms were dedicated for women, men, children and employers. The work offered in early labour exchanges were unskilled, as trade unions distributed skilled labour within industries. In the first week of the Shoreditch branch opening in 1911, jobs included a piano regulator and a picture frame gilder. With the invention of the telephone, the exchanges also sought to provide regional networks between the unemployed and employers. Immediate communication allowed for the internal surveillance of the good applicant, who would be matched with the most sought-after employment. This emphasis on the seamless flow of information categorised the distinction between the efficient and inefficient labourer and framed the issue of unemployment on fractured communication in the labour market. A year later, it's 1911 and the first issue of unemployment insurance is introduced. This gives the labour exchange a dual purpose to both match and administer benefits. This cemented the liberal belief that a strong desire to find work must be the prerequisite to receive unemployment benefits, distinguishing between the deserving and undeserving poor. Winston Churchill, one of the key architects of the Labour Exchange, unapologetically claimed the need to separate the class of mere loafers and vagrants. Under the socialist system, we cannot hope to uphold our standard of life and secure employment for the 50 million crowded in our small island. During both world wars, labour exchanges became sites for military conscription, reassigning men's labour to women. In post-war 1918, the labour exchanges began an unpopular turn, spreading its reach from the physical site of the labour exchange to the family home, where they would conduct invasive house assessments, interviews and interrogate household income. Up until the 1970s, Queues spilling into streets were a regular feature of the modern labour exchange. In the 60s, the decaying buildings and furniture, smoky and cramped interiors and old wooden counters that aggressively separated the clerk to the applicant marked the end of the original labour exchange. It is now 1973, and as a precursor to the abrasive lime green sofas, the classic tropes of 70s design, 
sticky orange, brown and bubble text signs ornate the newly renovated and renamed job centres. As they begin to pop up on high streets, the idea of the unemployed consumer is cemented in its rebranding. The newly refurbished job centres have the friendlier welcome of upholstered seats and quiet alcoves, which distracted from a major shift in its design through the implementation of job boards. This may sound like a mundane gesture, but was in fact a carefully articulated intervention into the creation of the job seeker. These boards contained small cards with job advertisements and encouraged casual browsing. The boards were systematically arranged to encourage the job seeker to view the low interest boards first, those advertising jobs with lower wages, to the high interest boards, explicitly encouraging downward mobility of the workforce. I grew up in the 30s with an unemployed father. He didn't riot. He got on his bike and looked for work, and he kept looking till he found it. This shift to self-service design is the key neoliberal turn in the functioning of the job centre, as you are now the active participant in finding work. This increased expectation of the flexible labourer also shifted the blame of unemployment onto the unemployed and paved the way for the cultural demonisation of benefit claimants. Thank you for calling Job Centre Plus. Please keep holding as there is no one available to take your call. Or feel free to phone back at a later date. With the glossy reinvention of the Job Centre Plus in the late noughties, with masquerading welcome desks and touchscreens, these highly surveillance spaces were reinforced by the Coalition's Universal Job Match Scheme, now pragmatically named Find a Job, an at-home online search function. The job centre's architecture has mutated to mass digitalisation, encouraging internet browsing, just as consumers adapt to online shopping. Yet the physical space is not yet quite redundant. In the merging with benefit claims, it is the site of compulsory advisory meetings with work coaches, with sanctions imposed on those who are absent from attendance. Since lockdown, the job centre has fully migrated online, and as its place on the high street remains unstable, we must not forget that its architecture has always been a disciplinary apparatus of the state, and one we must reinvent a future without. So, Mr Williamson, what have you done in order to find gainful employment since your last signing on date? Fuck all! I sat around the house wanking, and I want to know why you don't serve coffee here. My signing on time is supposed to be ten past eleven. It's now twelve o'clock, and some of you strange bastards need executing. Mr Williamson, your employment history looks quite impressive. I'm looking at three managers... Thanks to Sarah Valden for that history lesson. Now, one industry that has been hit particularly hard by COVID-19 has been the arts, with widespread closures of venues and huge potential job losses. We sent our roving reporter to a series of demos on the South Bank in London to find out how the fight back against redundancies is shaping up. Hi, my name's Sam Swan. I'm one of the arts coordinators for The World Transformed. It's Monday, the 27th of July. I'm at a socially distanced protest outside the Tate Modern on the South Bank in London. The reason we're here today is because uh, the Tate are about to sack hundreds of casualised workers. We're going to talk to some people today to see what they're doing, how the fight is going and how, how they're feeling as well. What are you fighting against? So essentially it's uh, the redundancy of hundreds of uh, casual and low paid workers and you're seeing this at South Bank Centre, you're seeing this at the Tate, you're seeing it at the National Theatre um, where the, the, sort of the, the most vulnerable members of the workforce are currently having their jobs put at risk um, with these mass redundancies and of course it is affecting the, the lowest paid, the casual workers, it's not affecting the, the six-figure sum earners of these various institutions. So this is after the supposed bailout happened as well? That's right, yeah, so the bailout apparently isn't getting through, which is the real problem because as far as the public are concerned, 1.5 billion has gone into the arts and everything's fine. Um, but really it's seen more as like a mothballing exercise, that it's there to make sure the buildings don't fall down um, but it's not protecting the workers that are inside which we're sort of from a union perspective challenging a little bit and saying well actually surely that is to save the workers but as far as management are concerned it's to sort of save the buildings and they've still got to make these draconian cuts. Data apparently has been allocated seven millions of that uh, one, one and a half billion and we want 10% of that. 
And if that is not enough to save our jobs, they need to ask for more money. Because apparently they did not ask for more money. And for us, it seems almost like they think that we are a collateral damage. For me, it's also a class issue because the directors and many of the ads, they think that, oh, well, they work at eight, but they could work in another cafe as well. How are people feeling? Are people scared? Yeah, and upset. Like they, they are scared, but the overriding feeling is upset and sadness because a lot of these institutions portray that we're all families, and a lot of people feel that. They really feel the family vibe of working in an art centre. And unfortunately, that family vibe has been shattered um, by the fact that they're all being made redundant at once. And it's obviously there is anger and there, there, is, there is that element of it. But I would say that really people need to realise how upset people are. We're here outside the National Theatre today. It's uh, August the 1st. So what, what are we doing here? Um, so I am a former National Theatre member from the Front of House team and um, we're gathering here today with the staff of the South Bank Centre because um, both casual, well, uh, Front of House workforces in both venues have been, uh, their jobs have been cut, so that's 800 jobs in total. The people facing the redundancies and not the people on the 100k salaries, it's the people working Front of House, it's the people who are cleaning the theatre. It's the people who are providing security for the theatres. It's people providing events at South Bank. It's pretty much anyone who is from the poorer demographic of society. Am I right? And how does it feel, this kind of precarious, unemployed situation that just seems kind of constant right now? You get physically ill from it. Um, you get anxious, you get depressed because you don't know when your shifts are coming. You don't have enough money coming in. Um, it's not a good way to live a life. But I will say that the consolation of that with my colleagues and this building, which was like a home to us. My colleagues were are really, really hurt mainly and shocked that they're being you know they're not being they're treated as expendable and, and covid has made you know much has been said about how covid has revealed kind of hidden injustices and it's exactly the same with the gig economy it's just very very obvious how exploitative and awful the system is and my colleagues are realizing that now and that's very painful to them they will pay lip service to equality but what will they do they will make hundreds and hundreds of people redundant who are from a bme bame background who are disabled, who are women, who are young. The most diverse workforce in this building is the front of house staff. I say that from personal experience. Um, if you go further up the chain, there is less diversity in race and class and gender. So when they decide they're going to let an entire sector of workforce go in a financial crisis, what are they going to do in order to promote and in enable diversity? These venues espouse egalitarian values and uh, Black Lives Matter support statements and then sack their most diverse workforce. It's absolutely disgusting and they shouldn't be allowed to get away with it. The way I see this is the beginning of a movement. Lots of my colleagues previously were not members of a union. Lots and lots of people have joined unions now. Lots of them are here. Previously wasn't the most political group of people, but now they're rallying around each other, so that gives me hope. It's the 6th of August and we've just got word that members of PCS Tate Commerce have voted to strike. We're demanding from Tate Galleries no redundancies while anyone is paid more than 100000 10% of the government's 7 million earmarked for the Tate to be invested to save jobs. And if the money isn't enough, that Tate should use its prominent voice and influence to ask for more money, not just for itself, but for the culture sector at large. They offered me the office of a leadership. They said I'd better take anything they got. Do you want to make tea at the BBC? Do you want to be? Do you really want to be a cop? Career opportunity. Thanks to Sam Swan for that report. The last months have seen a massive increase in the number of people interacting with the social security system, many for the first time. We listened in on a conversation between three activists from the campaign group Disabled People Against the Cuts, or DPAC, 
for their perspective on how the welfare system treats out-of-work disabled people. Please be aware that this conversation includes references to suicide. We heard from Ellen Clifford, Denise McKenna, and first, Andy Mitchell, who tweets as I'm a JSA claimant. I uh, was made unemployed in 2013. Um, I claimed job seekers allowance and quite quickly I received a benefit sanction. I didn't realise it was a benefit sanction at the time. Nobody told me, nobody used that, that, those words. They just stopped my money. You know, the, money, the, the, the amount that they give you, I think it was 100, 142 every two weeks at that point. And it started to make me think about what was going on. Why am I, why am I experiencing this? What's going, you know? And um, I was fortunate that in in the end they decided to not sanction me on this first occasion. But later on, um, they sanctioned me again, and it had a devastating cons- consequence on me. I ended up trying to take my own life, and. Shortly after that, I start. I, I wanted to talk about the experiences that I had had, and I. But I didn't want to tell my family, and I. And I didn't want to tell my school friends who were all on Facebook. So, I found Twitter, and started to talk about the experiences that I'd had and the experiences that I was having on a daily basis. Now, at this point. I'm not a disability campaigner. I'm just talking about my experiences of job seekers allowance. But very quickly, as you start talking about these things and you start to interact with the people on social media, you can't help but notice the problems that disabled people are having as well. So quite quickly um, um, after that, I learned about um, a woman who she was blind, uh, not totally blind, but um, she had to go down to the job centre um, to sign on every couple of weeks. And on this occasion, um, uh, the doors, the, the automatic sliding doors, um, weren't working properly. And unfortunately, she walked straight into them. Um, she fell, injured her face, and the the job the job centre staff were very nice and. Uh, they helped her um, until an ambulance came and, you know, they took her away and treated her. Now, a week or so later, she was sanctioned for not attending her appointment. Now, that's the sort that when you sort of sit, read these stories, you know, there, and there are so many, should I say, that's just the, one of the first ones that I that I heard about. I, I believe it happened in Bridgewater. You start to think, hey, what's going on here? You well, know, it, it is such a, a huge thing that the, the way that the whole social security system has become so, so cruel, so callous. And it also doesn't make any sense if you take it, take their aims at face value, wanting to get more people into employment. But there's so much evidence that, that sanctions and conditionality actually push particularly people in so-called vulnerable groups like disabled people further away from employment. And your own example, mm-hmm. Andy, is a, you know, perfect, is a perfect example of that. If you, you know, drive someone to the brink of their mental health where they try and take their own life, well, they're not going to be in, in a state where they can go out and, and take up a job the next day. In fact, it's, you know, it's, it's going to affect probably, you know, it's going to always be, be with you. Um, it, it just doesn't seem to make any sense if you look at it, I suppose, at face value. But for me, when I was um, looking into areas of, uh, of my book and thinking about why they were doing it, I suppose I was thinking of it more in terms of the, the purpose of the social security system and I guess what it what it's there for in the eyes of in, in the eyes of a, a neoliberal government. And I think for the majority of people, I would say, um, people think of the social security system as a safety net for people if they can't work or they fall on hard times and the idea I th- I, I I mean, I haven't tested this out and I don't know any research. I think it'd be interesting to see. But I suspect the majority of people would think that those who are most disadvantaged, most disabled, would be the people that would be protected the 
the strongest. But the opposite is actually true of, of how yeah. the social security system functions. I think, and from a, thinking about kind of disability politics, I guess that's that's because you know disabled people are less productive, seen as less productive in, in the workplace, and and costs of supporting us is it, it's a cost that you know capitalists would be rid of if if they could. They'd love to be rid of it. I think they only you know fund out-of-work benefits and disability support really to, to to avoid civil unrest and at you know at any point um, that they can you know make cuts to, to what they give us they will if they think they can get away with it so it's actually the the most disadvantaged if you like who, who are the worst treated often within the social security system I mean I, I I see a lot of the welfare reform changes that have come in since 2010 about a deliberate or it's deliberate strategy and I see the aim of it being about making sure firstly that uh, benefit claimants have a much worse experience than people do in work and because work is worse it pays so low there's like so such a high percentage of people are in work and also in poverty now you have to make sure that being on benefits is a worse experience than that mm-hmm. um yeah. Hence, you know, we, we've got such, you know, such an ina- inadequate levels on benefits, but also the bureaucracy, the sanctions, the fear and anxiety people live in. And I, but I think it, and it, and another um, aim is to discipline both workers to make sure they're prepared to take on worsening terms and conditions rather than go on benefits, but also to, to discipline the, you know, the reserve army of labour, those unemployed workers, so that, you know, people don't get into the habit of thinking, you know, they have the right to make decisions for themselves, but they're used to that power dynamic where someone is talking down to you and, and treating you like shit, um, which, is, which is now the relationship between the work coach and the benefit claimant and then you know what happens to disabled people who you know uh, can't fit into that system is really not a concern I think um, and I think the low priority that that is given to disabled people um, within the social security system is being evidenced by what's happened since March with the changes that have been brought in so things we've been campaigning on for years like you know ending conditionality and sanctions and the the low award levels was suddenly changed weren't they it was uprating of universal credit by 20 pounds um a week and and you know no conditionality and sanctions and i know andy that's been a gripe of yours and justifiably yeah, so that legacy benefits weren't increased and yet disabled people have, have also borne in fact often greater costs as a result of the coronavirus Mm-hmm. So can, can I can I come in yeah. here because um, I think you're, you're quite right about the the purpose of the the benefit system is to control the the, the workforce, the people that are actually in work. It's it's a, that's its purpose. It's it's made hellish to scare them into giving up their jobs or demanding better working conditions. I'm recently asking the question: What's the purpose of the NHS? Um, and, and in particular with mental health, because, you know, psychiatry, uh, the mental health system is, is quite separate from the physical health NHS system. Um, and and it's, it's been made quite clear recently that the purpose of mental health, uh, the, N, the NHS provision of mental health care is quite clearly to change the way a person perceives themselves, their role in the world, change their attitudes, change their thinking, um, we, we call all this sort of positive psychology. Um, it, it ignores the reality of their, their living conditions and it blames them for their mental distress. And, and of course, the measure of their functioning, or they're, they're, they're no longer having mental distresses, are they in work? So the argument, the argument is that being in work will cure your mental distress. And once you're in work, that will prove that you no longer have a mental health problem. <laughs> work... Is, is evidence that you're functioning. And that's another thing about stigma, because they've shifted the stigma from mental health to worklessness. So, so you're not stigmatized for being having, being in mental distress. Prince Harry's even been in mental distress. You're not stigmatized for that. But if you're in such severe mental distress that you cannot work, that is a huge stigma. <laughs> you know, that's a really interesting point. I never thought of. There was something I read by, some of you might know, Steve Graby, the academic activist. Um, and, and he wrote something about 
employment and, and disability where he suggested that maybe disabled people maybe we should actually start celebrating ourselves for the fact that we can't be made you know we can't be exploited for profit as much as other people can be and that we don't fit into the capitalist workplace and actually take pride in that for ourselves thanks again to ellen clifford denise mckenna and andy mitchell for that conversation from disabled people against cuts the benefit system wasn't always so punitive up next we take a trip to the 70s and 80s to examine the dull culture of the period and the flourishing of art and creativity it unofficially subsidized we hear first from musician Tim Jones. Thank you to the members. This is Living With Unemployment. When I was 16 in the mid-1970s, I left school and home, in fact, and went to live in a house with six other young people. The house was based around a small sort of artistic community of young'uns and we had a band. Most of the people in said small artistic community of young'uns were on the dole. Called it the dole back then. It was about £8.70 a week, I think it was, and uh, it was quite a struggle to survive on that little money. But you weren't particularly hassled to get a job, and we managed to keep our band going and do concerts and things like that um, whilst on the door. My name is Richard King. I'm an author. So I think you, f- you have to start by understanding the incipient doll culture that really flourished in the 1980s in terms of broader culture, um, not as a standalone culture entirely reliant on unemployment benefit, but a culture that was facilitated primarily and, and most obviously by the availability of, of cheap housing and the availability of cheap housing in inner cities. Throughout the 70s, you could still live for next to nothing in the middle of a city in Britain. They were full of rows and rows of empty houses. So if you had somewhere free to live, unemployment benefit went quite a long way in meeting some of your needs. Together with that, you had the rise of things like claimants, unions. There was incapacity benefits, there were sickness benefits. Uh, So if you add together some form of grant, some form of disability payment, some form, you know, the basic dole and cheap or very inexpensive housing, you're getting somewhere close to the kind of culture that was really thriving in, say, the Netherlands at the time or, or Benelux, Belgium as well, of really strong social democratic state support, but as it's Britain, it's far the back door. None of it was especially punitive. You know, there's very little vilification. The actual structure by which uh, social security was handed out wasn't there to make you feel shit about the fact you didn't have a job. So I think, you know, creative people could really, you know, you could navigate that system quite easily. In some ways, we were probably one of the last generations to truly know freedom not to be followed about and to be able to still exist as children, as 16, 17-year-olds, doing artistic pursuits and not being forced into a mindset of fear by the authorities. Most people who play Glastonbury, including New Order the Smiths, Billy Bragg, Gil Scott Heron in the 80s, those people... You would assume one of the reasons they were there was to support CND. And similarly, most of those bands played concerts for the unemployed, play minors' benefits, anti-apartheid benefits, GLC benefit concerts. I was looking for a job and then I found a job And heaven knows I'm miserable now There's, I think there's an assumption that all those people 
uh, were very much politically aligned with the people they played the benefits for and recognised that a huge percentage of their audience was, would have um, experienced unemployment either through choice or through um, fate. And you know, I think people at Madness did concerts for, for the unemployed as well. And obviously Two-Tone was very much a kind of articulation of, of that sort of resistance against Thatcherism. I remember hearing a story that when the Boo Radleys were on top of the pops for the first time, they probably wouldn't mind me saying this, they're all still signing on. Uh, so, you know, they hadn't been signed by their record company for millions and they were still kind of weaving in and in and out in between social security, but they were on top of the pops while still on the dole. And I'm fairly certain that was a very common experience for many people. In the 90s, it became even more restrictive as far as uh, trying to keep artistic pursuits going, playing in bands, because it became very, very difficult to do that and try to um, keep up with what was demanded from the authorities, the powers that be. Getting rid of the dole, getting rid of Social Security as a way of people using it to underwrite their experiments and what may or may not have become their career was almost a close fall moment. Part of the rebranding of New Labour was we're not going to have this sort of part subsidised by the dole culture. We're not going to have this ecosystem of sort of hand-to-mouth creativity anymore. We're going to have an a set of industries called the creative industries and we're going to have pizza expresses everywhere and we're going to have a big shiny Bilbao-esque gallery in every former industrial docks in Britain and that's who we're going to be now. We're not going to be Billy Bragg and Alan Bleasdale. We're not going to be Worthies. It's it's all about Richard Branson now. Uh, he's our guy, not Alan Bleasdale. I think the first thing New Labour wanted to do was just surround themselves with people to say, look, this is who we are. But it was, you know, it was it was very carefully vetted and it was people who were successful. It wasn't let's go to an experimental theatre company in Walsall and say this is who we are. It wasn't going up to Glasgow and putting their arms around the proclaimers. Uh, and it wasn't going to Bristol and putting their arms around Massive Attack. It was putting their arms around a lot of young people to early to late young early middle-aged white people and saying this is who we are Oi! there are seven people in this room tonight who are giving a little bit of hope to young people in this country that is me our kid bonehead quigsy alan white alan mcgee and tony blair and if you all got anything about you you get up there and you shake tony blair's hand man the man power to the people I think a key part of why the 90s was dull culture synonymous with it, because other than Morrissey in the 80s, not many people eulogised the dull. But, you know, Jarvis Cocker and Noel Gallagher were well on their way to becoming millionaires to the point where they could kind of start talking about it fondly. And, you know, I remember Jarvis talking about the dull stroll in Sheffield and sort of celebrating the fact he'd, he'd been unemployed. By the time they were celebrating it, they were no, they were millionaires in, or on their way to being millionaires in, in nice parts of London. And the dole got sort of celebrated by them at the point where it was being denied people who might have that sort of life themselves in the future. And I think that's the key thing: is, is Blair wanted to do away with it. He wanted to, you know, replace it with these sort of ersatz apprenticeships for, for would-be pop stars. Yeah, the idea that you could sort of sign on 
have housing benefits and suddenly start writing songs or, or spend that time and money renting a rehearsal room to be in a band. I think that, that all went out the window very quickly. The idea that you were going to be sitting on the dole writing songs rather than being a member of the creative en- industries, you know, it was anathema that you could spend time, what they would think of as being wasting time, being a musician or an artist, when you should be a business person doing those things, essentially. I do wonder, and I question, where the new young talent is going to come from, how it's going to prosper, how it's going to express itself. Because for young people now, I think it's virtually impossible to do what I did when I started off. People say that a lot of the best music comes out of struggle and hard times, and that's true to an extent. But the way things are now, um, I think it's very difficult for young people to have the um, space and the money to be able to express themselves at all, really. They don't have that freedom that I was talking about before. I think that the culture is losing out massively by not having any way of letting young people express themselves and, um, if necessary, giving them the finance to do it. to Tim Jones and Richard King for those insights. Up next, Penny Grennan from Tyndale Transformed with a story about her grandfather. My grandfather, Yen, was born at the end of the 1800s. He was born into a huge family um, on West Bank in Widnes in Lancashire and was brought up in terrible poverty. Um, He was not very well educated and was a labourer all his life, but he was only a labourer when he was given work. So Yen joined the Union of the Unemployed. Annie, his wife, was the secretary of the Labour Party. It's always been a Labour family. And um, when he was unemployed, he joined this this union. And um, that meant that every time he went to get a job as a labourer, he'd be employed and then someone would tell the boss that he was in the Union of the Unemployed and he'd be sacked. So, of course, a recession was happening and he uh, was on the means test. So they were means tested. There were six of them, uh, six children and his wife and his father all living in a two up, two down in, in conditions you just wouldn't believe really these days. But in order to keep the show on the road, he took up bare knuckle street fighting. So Yen was about five foot nine and quite stocky. And uh, apparently he was not a violent man at home, but he was very strong because uh, of being a labourer. And this was what he had to do to keep his family. So he used to be paid to fight. And sometimes he would be paid not to fight because he was such a good fighter. Now, my father was growing up within this background and he was the youngest and he had a disability. So he wasn't physically very able, but intellectually he was um, he was a very, very, very intelligent man. So he had a conversation with his father one day and he said to him, um, you know, this this fighting that you're doing, how, how come you're so good at it? And Yen said, well, well, Denny, you've just got to use your head. So my father thought about this and he thought, right, well, there's obviously a strategy about the way that you approach your opponent and, you you know, the angle that you're at and how much time you spend. So he's working out how you want to fight by using your head. And Yen said, no, that's not what I mean. You go in, you break their nose with your head and then you've won the fight. And so basically the system had made my grandfather a brute, although at home, he was a gentleman. We're approaching the end of our show, so we wanted to look forwards towards a future beyond unemployment and to find places we can catch glimpses of that future now. 
We spoke to Hilary Wainwright, editor of Red Pepper magazine and friend of the festival, for a view of the future. Well, I think any vision of a world beyond, beyond unemployment, which is really the waste of human capacity, is that, that you know, really visionary statement of Marx where he said that we, you know, he envisaged a society in which everybody contributed according to their capacity to meet the needs on the basis of everybody according to their need. And I think that's the vision that certainly guides me in thinking about an alternative beyond this kind of nightmare. And I think it's particularly pertinent in relation to the the question of unemployment, which in a way is one of the, there are many indictments of capitalism, but unemployment is perhaps a, a particularly telling one because basically it's treating huge numbers of people, thousands, maybe millions, millions in, in, on the present predictions of people as if they're redundant. They literally, you know, the, the term is you're redundant. I, you know, your capacities, your creativity, your abilities, your emotional capacities, your intellectual capacities are all completely redundant, meaning they're not relevant to the needs of everybody else in society. So it's a kind of, it's a proof, a demonstration that actually a capitalist society is not one that realises people's capacities and fulfills those, those immense, you know, creative possibilities that people have. So a truly humane society, which means a society that recognises that humanity is creative and also humanity is social, is one which matches people's abilities to other people's needs. So we've had four months of lockdown in which people have done all kinds of things to meet their neighbours' needs. It might be cooking, it might be shopping, it might be simply conversation, conviviality. You know, you've had a great creativity, you know, shown in people's daily lives, which has basically been about you know, each according to their ability, to each according to their need. So I think we can learn from the experience of the lockdown. And a bit like, you know, there's much to learn from the experience of the war. That was mainly to do with the role of the state, which then inspired the 1945 government. But I think that now we can learn a lot about the capacities of civic organisation, of citizens' organisations, including workers' organisations, workers as citizens. An example that inspired me at the beginning of lockdown, when I was just feeling I wanted to find out what was going on, was talking to workers in Airbus in, the, in North Wales, which were making, the workers there had been making planes. And then the government made a call for these aerospace companies to make ventilators. And I mean, the government did it in this rhetorical way as if, you know, it could just command it. And it talked about the companies, but had no recognition of the skills and teamwork and coordination needed to make such a big conversion from making planes to making ventilators. It was no simple matter. So I talked to the the trade unions there, the Unite convener, and he told me a remarkable story, basically, of how the fact that the unions were so well organised meant that, well, firstly, the organisation was there to to convert the factory on a part of the factory into a sterile environment for the production of, of ventilators. But then secondly, he told the story of how the sort of social values of the union and the, of its members, its, each individual member, because it was not so much to do with profit, but to do with meeting people's needs and particularly the desperate health needs of the of the day at uh, the beginning of the, the covid pandemic and what that was meaning for people who succumbed to it people volunteered to be involved in this conversion of a of an aerospace factory into a factory making ventilators and that in their organization the unions had you know a whole network of health and safety representatives you know that was that was well established you know they'd learnt about how to create a sterile environment, how to 
organized production. And so they, they made this conversion. Um, it was almost as if management wasn't needed. You know, it was, it was driven by the workers with the purpose of public health. So it was a real classic case of those workers applying their ability. It was like each according to their ability to meet the desperate need at that time for ventilators. Now, obviously, ventilators, I mean, there were problems with ventilators anyway, um, but we're not talking simply about ventilators, more and more ventilators. We could be talking about a whole re-equipment of the NHS, which is clearly needed. I mean, that became apparent, you know, everything, kidney machines, you know, it's not, I'm not a sort of techie health person, but... Um, you know, you can see that the health service has been so run down. So that would be a clear example of where workers' capacities could be organised to meet those needs of the health service. And so those capacities are not redundant. They're hugely useful. If we had a, a really expanded public sector and that was coordinated with with our manufacturing sector to produce really needed machinery using the skills of people who are now being called redundant and, and are being chucked on the, on, the, on the waste heap, which is unemployment. So it requires a whole new approach to, to coordination, to planning, to democratic control over the economy. Two things I'd want to add. One is the importance of rethinking working time. You know, that before the pandemic, obviously, you know, our economy has been changing. You know, that unemployment is not just a matter of the collapse of demand. It's also to do with the introduction of of new technology, particularly automation. And that, you know, we know that can be an opportunity. So with any technology, it's always a matter of choice. And, and organization. And in the case of um, the new technology, the um, automation, it means a massive increase in, in surplus labor. Now, surplus labor can be, can be reallocated to meet, you know, according to the, the, the needs of, of labor, you know, so people have more time. And people, again, experience this during lockdown. People experience, men experience you know, what it was like to spend time looking after their children, you know, with their, with their partners. They experienced, you know, what it was like to, to be able to spend time and develop their hobbies, their, their different capacities. And so, you know, the idea of a wholly, wholly different approach to labour and working hours, I think, is another part of our vision, that labour isn't something to be just cast aside but that we need to grab the benefits of the new technology to make to liberate our capacities and to enable us to fulfill ourselves rather than simply either provide higher profits or spend our lives on the dole without real purpose. So I think the present context is one where there's choices and we have to build a movement. And I'm thinking particularly of the trade union movement. I think TWT's role is crucial in helping the trade union movement become conscious of itself as not just a subordinate kind of force in capitalist society, but a champion of social need. I mean, we saw it with the teachers, you know, the way that their struggle around schools was not just about their wages and conditions, but was about the needs of of society, of parents, of communities. And I think... If we could together develop a trade union movement, and where most of us are workers and citizens, and so there's the potential for a, a labour movement, which is not just got policies, but is practising a different vision in its daily struggles, I think that's the way to go. It's about consciousness and therefore about education in the true sense of Paolo Freire, of people realising their own potential and becoming fully conscious of themselves and themselves as social beings. You've been listening to TWTFM, a podcast from The World Transformed. If you could subscribe to the podcast and leave a review, that would really help other people discover the show. To find out more about this year's Digital First Festival running throughout the whole of September, please visit theworldtransformed.org. 
Here you can register for your free festival pass and browse the full programme. Throughout the festival, we'll be tackling big questions such as how can we organise for our rights at work? What does a green and just response to COVID-19 look like? How can we build global anti-racist solidarity? And where does our movement go from here? And don't worry, even though the festival will be held online this year, TWT20 will still be as radically interactive as ever. Expect workshops, big panels and debates, virtual games, cookery classes, parties, arts and culture and more. So what are you waiting for? Register for your free festival pass at theworldtransformed.org. That's theworldtransformed.org.